All right, guys, so today we have a, it's a special morning for a couple reasons, obviously. 10th anniversary is exciting. Uh, but also, uh, this morning we are going to actually dive into the, the text, the words of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. So if you guys are new, we've been in a series called About That Life, a series on what it means to actually follow Jesus. And the series is on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so uh, to get ready for that series, uh, but, but, but to get ready for this series, we've talked about who is Jesus, the one who is giving this sermon. Uh, we've talked about what is discipleship. We said the sermon is all about discipleship. And so we said, what is discipleship? And Grant Clark did a great job with both of those messages. Last week, I just said, what is the Sermon on the Mount? And so I did that, uh, read some long quotes, told some good jokes, explained some stories, some scriptures. Uh, and then um, today, it's like we've been building to this, but today we're actually going to get into Jesus's actual teaching the text of the Sermon on the Mount. And to do that, uh, we've asked Maria Orta, someone who I think is a gifted teacher, missionary to South Asia, and here this morning, all right? So give it up for Maria. I'm going to go ahead and pray for her, and then we will dive in. Giving the people what they want, Maria. Jackie's <laughs> loving it. All right. <laughs> uh, Father, thank you for this woman and the work she's put into this. I pray, God, that you um, would illuminate the text in a fresh way. Even as she preaches, she's prepared so well. Uh, but you'd even give her um, a little more of what she needs for today. I pray, God, that you would speak through her. I pray she'd feel at peace about that and trust that. Um, we're so excited to have her up here on a special day, um, that she's a picture of what this church is all about, which is multiplying disciples and leaders and gospel proclaimers. And so we're so grateful for her. And we just pray that you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and hands that are ready to move and apply what we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Maria. Thank you, Andy. Hi, everyone. Um, like Andy said, my name is Maria, and I'm part of the staff team here at Restored Uptown. And as you might have guessed from my name, Maria, I am a first-generation American. And that's not my whole story, but it is a significant part of my story. My mom was born in a small village in southern Mexico. At the age of 16, she decided that she would leave her village, her family, and everything that was familiar to her to set off on a 1,700-mile journey north to the United States of America. My mom, however, did not have a plane ticket or a car or, to be honest with you, legal permission to enter the country. <laughs> Instead, she would alone have to navigate buses, trains, and miles on miles on miles of walking through unknown roads, extremely humid deserts, and unpredictable rivers, often under the cover of night. And she wouldn't just have to endure hunger and thirst in her journey, but also the realities of dangers like venomous animals, the potential of armed gangs or rape, and robbery. Her life at one point would even be entrusted to a complete stranger, a professional smuggler who made his living off of helping people cross the US-Mexico border illegally. And just to be clear, this wasn't like a Bear Grylls REI-funded like adventure trek. <laughs> this was a life-threatening, high-stakes journey that a 16-year-old kid was taking by herself. And this type of journey, it's actually not uncommon to the half a million people every year from Mexico and Central and South America in, who make the same journey in hopes of achieving even just a chance at their own American dream. And my mom, of course, she made it to America, hence me up here today, but it cost her a lot to be here. She left behind family, she left behind her native language and culture, 
She left behind her ability to work legally. She literally became a stranger and an alien in a foreign land, and the list goes on. And she did this because she was so captivated and convinced that her American dream was good and that it would lead to such a significantly better life than the one that she had that she was willing to risk everything to attain it. That was my mom's vision of the good life. And I know that my mom is not alone. Now, most of us here probably don't have a vision for our life that involves something extreme like changing countries, but we all have a vision of what the good life is. What's yours? To help you figure that out, let's take a moment to close our eyes. If you're new here, I promise you don't do this every week. If you feel uncomfortable, you can like clutch your purse. Um, <laughs> but I'm about to ask you some questions, and I want, you, I want you to picture some answers to the questions I'm about to ask you, so get cozy. In your vision of the good life, where are you living? What does your financial situation look like and how did you get there? What do you have? What do your relationships look like? What kind of friendships do you have? Your romantic relationship? What does your schedule look like? Can you picture it? Raise your hand if you can picture it. It's good, right? <laughs> okay, now open your eyes, guys, because it's not real. <laughs> Back to reality. <laughs> Sorry for pulling you away from your ideal life. But what I hope that you can see using your imagination here is that we all have some type of vision of what we believe the best life for us looks like and what we're willing to sacrifice to actually pursue it. In other words, we all have a vision of what the good life is. The tension, though, is that often our vision of the good life is not the same vision as the vision that God has for us. And that is why today, as we continue our series about that life, where we are looking at what it means to actually follow Jesus, we're going to look at what Jesus says the good life actually is by looking at the Sermon on the Mount. So for the last couple of weeks, um, like Andy said, Grant and Andy have been introducing the Sermon on the Mount, but today we're going to begin to actually dive into Jesus' words and teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching us how life works best in the world his Father created. So Andy last week talked about how Jesus is essentially teaching us to thrive in this world in him. So as we enter into the first part of the Sermon on the Mount today, Jesus is going to start by describing the kind of people who are experiencing the good life. So what does it mean to live the good life? Or a Christianese way to ask this is, what is the blessed life? So Jesus is about to tell us. So if you have Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12, where Jesus, after having just called his disciples to follow him, is now beginning to teach them about the blessed life. Are you ready? Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. 
And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And as I read that, I'm sure some of you thought, surely this is the wrong way around. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are persecuted, how could this be the good life? If our culture had written these Beatitudes, one pastor said, it might sound more like this. Blessed are the entitled, for they grab what they want. Blessed are the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, for they shall get ahead. Blessed are the greedy, for they shall hoard. Blessed are the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Blessed are the sneaky, for they shall look good. Blessed are the contentious, for they shall be called winners. Blessed are the popular, for this world lies at their feet. This is the way of our world. So this won't feel foreign to us. In fact, maybe these unbeatitudes actually feel more appealing to us. And yet in Luke chapter 6, we see Jesus giving a warning to people who choose to live like this. So in Luke chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, Jesus says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. And woe to you who now are full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. Here we see Jesus warning us about wealth and satisfaction and comfort and popularity, power, success, recognition, and fame. Basically, all the things that in our world people live for to find happiness. People build their lives on these pursuits, and yet Jesus is like, whoa, there's danger here. Be careful. Jesus is teaching us that the good life, it's not found in these things, and that building our lives in this way will not lead to happiness. Money, comfort, popularity are not the things we should be after in 2022, and that's a huge value reversal for our culture. And so part of our work as disciples is actually processing if the vision that we are living for is our culture's, or just ours, or is it God's? So let's read the Beatitudes again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. <clears throat> now I know in these nice nine verses there are a lot of big ideas. And you may be wondering what exactly is this sermon going to be about? Logical question. Like which topic? And in a way it's going to be about all of them. 
Which leads me to the two questions that I'm hoping to answer today for us. One, what is a beatitude? And two, what does being blessed actually mean? Again, one, what is a beatitude? And two, what does being blessed actually mean? So let's dive into our first question. First up, what is a beatitude? You'll find this word above uh, verse 2 in your Bibles. And these verses are by far the most famous and well-loved part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So what does beatitude mean? A beatitude is a declaration of blessing. It's from the Latin beatus, meaning blessed or happy. And each of these eight blessings, it's not describing eight different people. It's describing one person, one follower. It is describing the life of a true follower of Jesus. And so second, we're on to the second question already. Secondly, what does being blessed actually mean? Blessed or blessing, it's a real church word. It's probably not an everyday word that you use in your home or your workplace, but Jesus is actually not being super spiritual here. Blessed just means happy to the point of being envied. Jesus starts this the most famous sermon ever preached, talking about something everyone wants, the thing our entire world is searching for. He's talking about, about both how to be happy and the kind of person who has true happiness. Blessed means that you are happy because of the grace of God, because of the favor of God in your life. Jesus here, he's talking about a long-lasting happiness that is not based on our situations or our circumstances, but that is found in him. And it's not based on our experiences or emotions, because if that were true, then it would just be up and down based on our mood or the events of the day. But this kind of happiness, it is based on Jesus and established in him. So let's look at the eight points that Jesus gives us to describe what a Christian should look like and how we find the good life as we follow and imitate him. So let's start at the very beginning. The first beatitude says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is the first beatitude, and in a sense, the beginning of this sermon. This tells us a lot about how we start out and continue in the spiritual life. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Theologian Daryl Johnson says it like this. Blessed are the destitute in spirit, the beggarly poor in spirit. You see, beggars come with empty hands and empty pockets. They have nothing to offer in return for food. The poor in spirit are those who know that they have nothing in which to get the kingdom of God. End quote. To be poor in spirit is basically to be completely absent of self-reliance. It's coming to God and admitting that we are helpless, that we need him, that we can't do this on our own, that we need a savior. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of us in the room don't like this imagery. We don't want to be poor in any sense. Like, in our culture, the American dream is marked by the self-made person. We love the rag-to-riches story those who overcome poverty to make something of themselves. And yet here Jesus is saying the opposite. We have nothing, and everything that we have is from him. There are no self-made people in the kingdom of God. If you are in the kingdom, you are a Jesus-made person. It is by grace that he saves us. The next beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the word mourn here in the Greek language is one of the strongest words for grief. And Jesus is talking about a particular kind of grief and mourning. It's a grief that's over our sin. 
These are the self-aware people, the people who are honest with themselves and allow scripture and the Holy Spirit to point out their brokenness, sin, and flaws. And they choose to repent because they know that sin is keeping them from right relationship with God. Now, this is important to note for all the Beatitudes. They don't say, blessed are those who mourn, for they get to mourn. That's good news. Mourning, that's not good news. Sorry. Mourning is not a reward. We're talking about the good life. There's joy there, I promise. (laughs) What mourning here is, it's a mark of true repentance. And when we repent and turn back to God, his promise is that there we will find his comfort. The blessing is not in the mourning. The blessing is from God who comforts those who mourn by his grace. Next beatitude says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think a massive misconception in the church is to believe that meek means weak. We think it means something like just gentle and nice, and that is not appealing to many people in the world today. But this is completely wrong. To be meek, it doesn't mean to be weak. It means to take your hands off your life, surrender everything to God, and to let him take the lead in our lives. It means to give over complete control to the will of God. Meekness means humble surrender, and it can be really powerful. It's someone with power choosing to lay down their power, choosing to lay their power down, not by coercion or threat of violence or by a social media mob threatening to cancel you. It's a choice to submit to something greater than yourself. The greatest example of this is Jesus. He says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. And we see Jesus in the garden the night before the cross wrestling with God about going to the cross, but then choosing to go to the cross, choosing to submit. And honestly, out of all the Beatitudes, I wrestled with this one the most for myself. The idea of submitting to someone so fully is completely against the American value of independence. Then I thought about Jesus, the most capable man to ever live, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and saying to God, not my will, but yours be done. And then giving himself fully for us on the cross. The next beatitude says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In our world today, there are many things that people hunger and thirst after. Success, wealth, sex, power, popularity, applause, respect. But the truth is that these do not satisfy or they're uh, extremely, their reward is extremely short-lived. But this passage is not talking about the blessing we desire in life, the blessings we desire in life. It doesn't say blessed are Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after blessedness, for they shall be satisfied. The hunger and thirst here is a hunger and a thirst for holiness, for God and his ways. And when we pursue these things, rather than the things things the world tells us to pursue, we find the satisfaction that we've been looking for all along. C.S. Lewis once said, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. When we pursue the good life and we start with the assumption of where we think we will find it, rather than with God, we will never be satisfied. The next beatitude says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
So firstly, what is mercy? What does it mean to be merciful? So mercy here in the original Greek could be defined as active compassion. So here's what Paul Miller, a gifted Bible teacher, says about compassion. Compassion is most frequently attributed, is most frequently attributed to Jesus. Sorry. Compassion is the emotion most frequently attributed to Jesus. How can you tell that a person feels compassion? After all, compassion is quite subtle compared to anger or fear. When I ask people what compassion looks like, they say it's communicated through a person's eyes. They are soft and tender, attentive and concerned. The entire body, the entire body pauses and listens, absorbing the feelings of another. End quote. Compassion is probably most comparable to the ideas we have of empathy or sympathy. We feel where someone is coming from and we don't judge them. Instead, we have mercy for them. The next beatitude says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In biblical language, the heart is the center of the person. It includes the will, the emotions, the mind. It's the whole person. So this passage is saying that the good life involves a complete purity of heart. This means one desire, one focus, one love. A pure metal or a pure substance, for example, is made from only one thing. It's not a blend or mixture of things. I think about when people get engaged, it's a big deal. You get your nails done, you look great, your background's great, Ali can tell you more about it. Um, and I've heard that when you get engaged, one of the first things everyone asks is like, let me see the ring. Now imagine pulling out your ring to show your family and friends and there are large, obvious imperfections on it. It's tough. No one's going to be impressed. People want bright, clear, beautiful rings. Here, Jesus is calling us to have bright and clear, pure hearts, to live for one thing, to live for him alone, to stop letting a bunch of lords and other kings rule in our lives. He is calling us to let him alone rule and reign in our lives. He's calling us to a singleness, a purity of heart. The next beatitude says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So these are the people who literally make peace. They bring order and health to the situations they go into. They change lives and places with the ways of God. They challenge sin and establish righteousness. Their lives produce the way of God in situations between person and person, group and group, nation and nation. And ultimately, their desire is to see peace between man and God through the work of Jesus on the cross. Some people are peace destroyers. <laughs> they are volatile, explosive, uncontrolled, emotionally immature, gossiping, slandering, overly sensitive, causing division and pain. We all know someone like that, am I right? <laughs> For them, the order of God's kingdom is not in their lives. And if everywhere you go, there is drama, problems, and fighting, then maybe you are a peace destroyer rather than a peacemaker. But if everywhere you go, Peace comes, love comes, joy comes, wholeness comes, and situations are changed for the better than maybe you are a maker of peace. The final verses in the Beatitudes say this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What I want you to see is that Jesus was persecuted for living out the ways of his kingdom in our world. And if you are a follower of Jesus who is actively living out the way of his kingdom, then he has already told us that we should expect to be persecuted for following him. And that is certainly as true in modern day San Diego as it was in the first century. For example, if you believe that God created humanity and he creates us male and female, and that our biological sex at birth determines our gender, then you might be called transphobic. And if you believe that God, in his sovereign good wisdom, created human sexuality as a gift, a gift that is designed to be shared between one man and one woman in a committed covenantal marriage relationship, you might be called homophobic, a prude, old-fashioned, or sexually repressive. Or if you believe that you should forgive your enemies, love your enemies, and seek to bless them and give time to pray for them, despite the fact that these are people who have wronged you, people who have hurt you, people who don't apologize, you might be called foolish. If you believe that abortion is taking the life of an image bearer of God and snuffing out someone with so much potential whose life is worthy of value, respect, and dignity, if you believe this, then you will likely be called a misogynist, even if you're a woman who has this belief. And even though over half the babies that are aborted are themselves women. And if you believe that Jesus is the one and only way to enter into the kingdom of God, and the one and only way to know God, you might be called bigoted, or narrow-minded, or intolerant especially in a world where everyone gets to create and speak their own truth. And these can be very difficult and feel like hard things to hear. And often for us, when things appear difficult or feel hard, it can be hard for us to understand that we are living in what is good for us. And this is what Jesus is talking about in the last Beatitude. Even though the church was experiencing intense persecution, he could still say they are blessed. Because Jesus knew that the good life isn't found in our right standing with culture, what people think of us on social media, if people think we're cool or tolerant, and not even in our circumstances. It's found in him. I mentioned earlier the story of my mom coming to America and how she gave up a lot to be here because she had a vision for her life, but she also had a vision for mine. She had a vision for who I would become, for the kind of education I would get, and how much money I would make, and the life I would have in America. So you can imagine her excitement when I told her that uh, I was moving to a developing nation, <laughs> halfway across the world, <laughs> in Asia, <laughs> to a place very similar to the world that she left as a 16-year-old kid. I'm joking, guys. She wasn't excited. She called me crazy. <laughs> My mom was confused. Because in her worldview, with her set of values, she couldn't understand giving up everything that to her was the equation for the good life. 
And maybe after reading through these Beatitudes today, you're a bit confused. And listen, I get it. Jesus' vision of the good life is radical. One girl this week, when she was reading through our GC notes, through the Sermon on the Mount, she was like, this is a lot. And (laughs) she's right. (laughs) It is a lot. Let's be honest. But I want you to know that submitting to Jesus' vision of the good life, it's worth it. I've experienced it. There is deep joy to be found in being in Jesus. And when you obey him by submitting to Jesus' vision of the good life, when you obey him by submitting your life to his teaching and his vision of the good life, you will find more peace and happiness than you've ever imagined. And so as I end today, I want to ask you, what vision of the good life do you hold to and do you believe in? And are you willing to trust and follow Jesus into what he says the good life is, even if it's not what you thought the good life was before? So again, two questions. What vision of the good life do you hold to and do you believe in? And are you willing to trust and follow Jesus into what he says the good life is, even if it's not what you thought the good life was before? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you don't leave us guessing, but that you lived your life in such a way that we could follow your example. And so I pray, God, that as we reflect on your vision of the good life and our vision of the good life, that we would trust you and that we would have the courage and the faith to follow you into your vision of the good life. Your word says, God, that those who ask for wisdom will receive it. And so I pray that you would give us wisdom to know what that means for our life, in our marriages, in our workplace, in our homes, in our churches, in our communities. We thank you for your love, for your kindness, and for your truth. Amen.